Section 19 of The Book of the Thousand Nights and a Night, Volume 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of the Thousand Nights and a Night, Volume 10 by Anonymous. Translated by Richard Francis Burton. The Matter of the Nights, Part 1. Returning to my threefold distribution of this prose poem into fable, fairy tale, and historical anecdote, let me proceed to consider these sections more carefully. The apologue or beast fable, which apparently antedates all other subjects in the nights, has been called one of the earliest creations of the awakening consciousness of mankind. I should regard it, despite a monumental antiquity, as the offspring of a comparatively civilized age, when a jealous despotism or a powerful oligarchy threw difficulties and dangers in the way of speaking plain truth. A hint can be given, and a friend or foe can be lauded or abused, as Belines the sheep or Isengrim the wolf, when the author is debarred the higher enjoyment of praising them or dispraising them by name. And, as the purposes of fables are twofold, duplex libelli dos est, quod risum movet, et quod prudenti vitam concilio monet. The speaking of brute beasts would give a piquancy and a pleasantry to moral design, as well as to social and political satire. The literary origin of the fables is not Buddhistic. We must especially shun that Indo-Germanic school which goes to India for its origins, when Pythagoras, Solon, Herodotus, Plato, Aristotle, and possibly Homer sat for instruction at the feet of the Hirseshta, the learned grammarians of the pharaonic court. Nor was it Aesopic, evidently Aesop inherited the hoarded wealth of ages. As Professor Lepsius taught us, in the olden times within the memory of man, we know only of one advanced culture, of only one mode of writing, and of only one literary development, viz. those of Egypt. The invention of an alphabet, as opposed to a syllabary, unknown to Babylonia, to Assyria, and to that extreme born of their civilizing influence, China, would forever fix their literature, poetry, history, and criticism. The Apologue and the Anecdote to mention no others, the lion and the mouse appears in Leyden Papyrus, dating from B.C. 1211-66, the days of Ramses III, Ramsinitus, or Hakon, not as a rude and early attempt, but in a finished form, postulating an ancient origin and illustrious ancestry. The dialogue also is brought to perfection in the discourse between the jackal Kufi and the Ethiopian cat. Revu Egyptologice Ivme Ane Partvan. Africa, therefore, was the home of the beast fable, not as Professor Mahaffey thinks, because it was the chosen land of animal worship, where Opita tote canem venerantur nemo dianam, but simply because the Nile land originated every form of literature between Fablio and Epos. From Kemi the Black Land it was but a step to Phoenicia, Judea, Phrygia, and Asia Minor, whence a ferry led over to Greece. 
Here the epilogue found its popularizer in Aesop, whose name, involved in myth, possibly connects with Aesopus et Aetiops idem sonnat, says the sage. This would show that the Hellenes preserved a legend of the land whence the beast fable arose, and we may accept the fabulists' era as contemporary with Croesus and Solon, B.C. 570, about a century after Psammeticus, Psammetic I, through Egypt opened the restless Greek. From Africa, too, the fable would in early ages migrate eastwards and make for itself a new home in the second great focus of civilization formed by the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. The late Mr. George Smith found amongst the cuneiform fragmentary beast fables, such as dialogues between the ox and the horse, the eagle and the sun. In after centuries, when the conquests of Macedonian Alexander completed what Sesostris and Semiramis had begun, and mingled the manifold families of mankind by joining the Eastern to the Western world, the Orient became formally Hellenized. Under the Soloikidae, and during the life of the independent Bactrian kingdom, B.C. 255-125, to Grecian art and science, literature and even language, overran the old Iranic reign and extended eastwards throughout northern India. Porus sent two embassies to Augustus in B.C. 19, and in one of them the herald Zarmanohagas, Shramanahraya, of Bargosa, the modern baroch in Guzarat, bore an epistle upon vellum written in Greek. Strabo 15, 1, section 78. Videtis gentes populosque mutasse sedes, says Seneca. Quid sibi volunt in mediis barbarorum regionibus gracae artes, quid inter indos persaque Macedonicus sermo, Athenienses in Asia turba est, Upper India, in the Macedonian days, would have been mainly Buddhistic, possessing a rude alphabet borrowed from Egypt through Arabia and Phoenicia, but still in a low and barbarous condition. Her buildings were wooden, and she lacked, as far as we know, stone architecture, the main test of a social development. But the Bactrian kingdom gave an impulse to her civilization, and the result was classical opposed to Vedic Sanskrit. From Persia, Greek letters, extending southwards to Arabia, would find indigenous imitators, and there Aesop would be represented by the sundry sages who share the name Lokman. One of these was a servile condition tailor, carpenter or shepherd, and a habashi, Ethiopian, meaning a negro slave with blubber lips and splay feet, so far showing a superficial likeness to the Aesop of history. The Aesopic fable carried by the Hellenes to India might have fallen in with some rude and fantastic barbarian of Buddhistic persuasion and indigenous origin. So Reynard the Fox has its analogue amongst the Kafirs and the void tribe of Mandengan Negroes in Liberia, amongst whom one Doalu invented or rather borrowed a syllabarium. The modern gypsies are said also to have beast fables, which have never been traced to a foreign source, Leland, but I cannot accept the refinement of difference which Professor Benfey, followed by Mr. Case Falconer, 
discovers between the Aesopic and the Hindu apologue. In the former, animals are allowed to act as animals. The latter makes them act as men, in the form of animals. The essence of the beast fable is a reminiscence of Homo primigenius, with erected ears and hairy hide, and its expression is to make the brother brute behave, think and talk like him, with the superadded experience of ages. To early man, the lower animals, which are born, live and die like himself, showing all the same effects and disaffects, loves and hates, passions, prepossessions and prejudices, must have seemed quite human enough, and on an equal level to become his substitutes. The savage, when he began to reflect, would regard the carnivore and the serpent with awe, wonder and dread, and would soon suspect the same mysterious potency in the brute as in himself. So the Malays still look upon the Uran-Utan, or woodman, as the possessor of superhuman wisdom. The hunter and the herdsman, who had few other companions, would presently explain the peculiar relations of animals to themselves by material metamorphosis, the bodily transformation of man to brute, giving increased powers of working him wheel and woe. A more advanced stage would find the step easy to metempsychosis, the beast containing the ego, alias soul, of the human. Such instinctive belief explains much in Hindu literature, but it was not wanted at first by the apologue. This blending of blood, this racial baptism, would produce a fine, robust progeny, and after our second century, Egypto-Greco-Indian stories overran the civilized globe between Rome and China. Tales have wings and fly farther than the jade hatchets of proto-historic days. And the result was a book which has had more readers than any other except the Bible. Its original is unknown. The volume which in Pelevi became the Javidan Hirad, Wisdom of Ages, or the Testament of Hoshang, the ancient Quabra king, and in Sanskrit the Panchatantra, five chapters, is a recuel of apologues and anecdotes related by the learned Brahman, Vishnu Sharma, for the benefit of his pupils, the sons of an Indian Raja. The Hindu original has been adapted and translated into a number of languages, Arabic, Hebrew, and Syriac, Greek and Latin, Persian and Turkish, under host of names. Voltaire wisely remarks of this venerable production. Quand on fait réflexion que presque toute la terre a été enfatuée de pareils contes et qu'ils ont fait l'éducation du genre humain, on trouve les fables de Pilpay, de Lockman, d'Esope bien raisonnables. But methinks the sage of Ferney might have said far more. These fables speak with the large utterance of early man. They have also their own especial beauty, the charms of well-preserved and time-honored old age. There is in their wisdom a perfume of the past, homely and ancient-fashioned, like a whiff of potpour, wondrous soothing withal to olfactories, agitated by the patchoulis and jockey clubs of modern pretenders and petit maîtres with their grey young heads and pert intelligence, the motto of whose ignorance is Konu. Where a dose of its antique, mature experience adhibited to the western before he visits the east, those few who could digest it might escape, 
the normal lot of being twisted round the fingers of every rogue they meet from Dragoman to Raja. And a quotation from them tells at once, it shows the quarter to be man of education, not a jangali, a sylvan or savage, as the Anglo-Indian official is habitually termed by his more civilized fellow subject. The main difference between the classical apologue and the fable in the nights is that while Aesop and Gabrias write laconic tales with a single event and a simple moral, the Arabian fables are often long-continued novels involving a variety of events, each characterized by some social or political aspect, forming a narrative highly interesting in itself, often exhibiting the most exquisite moral, and yet preserving, with rare ingenuity, the peculiar characteristics of the actors. And the distinction between the ancient and the medieval apologue, including the modern which, since Reineke Fuchs is mainly German, appears equally pronounced. The latter is humorous enough, and rich in the wit, which results from superficial incongruity, but it ignores the deep underlying bond which connects man with beast. Again, the main secret of its success is the strain of pungent satire, especially in the Renardin cycle, which the people could apply to all unpopular lords and prelates, ghostly and worldly. Our Requiel contains two distinct sets of apologues. The first, volume three, consists of eleven, alternating with five anecdotes. Knights 146 to 153, following the lengthy and knightly romance of King Omar bin al-Nu'aman, and followed by the melancholy love tale of Ali bin Bakar. The second series, in volume nine, consisting of eight fables, not including ten anecdotes. Knights 901 and 924, is injected into the romance of King Jaliad and Shimas, mentioned by al-Masudi as independent of the knights. In both places, the beast fables are introduced with some art and add variety to the subject matter, obviating monotony, the deadly sin of such works, and giving repose to the hearer or reader after a climax of excitement, such as the murder of the wazirs. And even these are not allowed to pall upon the mental palate, being mingled with anecdotes and short tales, such as the Hermits, 3.125, with biographical or literary episodes, acroamata, table talk, and analects, where humorous Rabelaisine anecdote finds a place. In fact, the Fablio or Novella. This style of composition may be as ancient as the apologues. We know that it dates as far back as the Third, from the history of the two brothers in the Orbigny Papyrus, the prototype of Yusuf and Zuleika, the Quranic Joseph and Popitar's wife. It is told with a charming naivete and such sharp touches of local color as, Come, let us make merry an hour and lie together, let down the hair. Some of the epilogues in the nights are pointless enough, Remoins quamusants, but in the best specimens, such as the wolf and the fox, the wicked man and the wily man, both characters are carefully kept distinct, and neither action nor dialogue ever flags. Again, the flea and the mouse, 3151, of a type familiar to students of the Pilpay cycle, must strike the home reader as peculiarly quaint.
Next in date to the apologue comes the fairy tale proper, where the natural universe is supplemented by one of purely imaginative existence. As the active world is inferior to the rational soul, says Bacon with his normal sound sense, so fiction gives to mankind what history denies, and in some measure satisfies the mind with shadows when it cannot enjoy the substance. And as real history gives us not the success of things, according to the deserts of vice and virtue, fiction corrects it and presents us with the fates and fortunes of persons, rewarded and punished according to merit. But I would say still more, history paints, or attempts to paint, life as it is, a mighty maze with or without a plan. Fiction shows or would show us life as it should be, wisely ordered and laid down on fixed lines. Thus fiction is not the mere handmaid of history. She has a household of her own, and she claims to be the triumph of art, which, as Goethe remarked, is art because it is not nature. Fancy, la folle de logis, is that kind and gentle portress who holds the gate of hope wide open, in opposition to reason, the surly and scrupulous guard. As Palmerin of England says and says well, for that the report of noble deeds doth urge the courageous mind to equal those who bear most commendation of their approved valiancy. This is the fair fruit of imagination and of ancient histories. And last but not least, the faculty of fancy takes count of the cravings of man's nature for the marvelous, the impossible, and of his higher aspirations for the ideal, the perfect. She realizes the wild dreams and visions of his generous youth, and portrays for him a portion of that other and better world, with whose expectation he would console his age. The imaginative varnish of the knights serves admirably as a foil to the absolute realism of the picture in general. We enjoy being carried away from trivial and commonplace characters, scenes and incidents, from the matter-of-fact surroundings of a work-a-day world, a life of eating and drinking, sleeping and waking, fighting and loving, into a society and a mise-en-scene, which we suspect can exist, and which we know does not. Every man at some turn or term of his life has longed for supernatural powers and a glimpse of wonderland. Here he is in the midst of it. Here he sees mighty spirits summoned to work the human might's will, however whimsical, who can transport him in an eye-twinkling whithsoever he wishes, who can ruin cities and build palaces of gold and silver, gems and yachins, who can serve up delicate viands and delicious drinks in priceless chargers and impossible cups, and bring the choicest fruits from farthest Orient. Here he finds magas and magicians, who can make kings of his friends, slay armies of his foes, and bring any number of beloveds to his arms. And from this outraging probability and outstripping possibility arises not a little of that strange fascination exercised for nearly two centuries upon the life and literature of Europe by the knights, even in their mutilated and garbled form. The reader surrenders himself to the spell, feeling almost inclined to inquire, and why may it not be true? His brain is dazed and dazzled by the splendors which flash before it, by the sudden procession of jinns and genias, demons and fairies, 
some hideous, others preternaturally beautiful, by good wizards and evil sorcerers, whose powers are unlimited for weal and for woe, by mermen and mermaids, flying horses, talking animals, and reasoning elephants, by magic rings and their slaves, and by talismanic couches, which rivals the carpet of Solomon. Hence, as one remarks, these fairy tales have pleased, and still continue to please, almost all ages, all ranks, and all different capacities. Dr. Hawkesworth observes that these fairy tales find favor because even their machinery, wild and wonderful as it is, has its laws, and the magicians and enchanters perform nothing but what was naturally to be expected from such beings, after we had once granted them existence. Mr. Heron rather supposes the very contrary is the truth of the fact. It is surely the strangeness, the unknown nature, the anomalous character of the supernatural agents here employed, that makes them to operate so powerfully on our hopes, fears, curiosities, sympathies, and, in short, on all the feelings of our hearts. We see men and women, who possess qualities to recommend them to our favor, subjected to the influence of beings, whose good or ill will, power or weakness, attention or neglect, are regulated by motives and circumstances, which we cannot comprehend, and hence we naturally tremble for their fate, with the same anxious concern as we should for a friend wandering in a dark night amidst torrents and precipices, or preparing to land on a strange island, while he knew not whether he should be received on the shore by cannibals waiting to tear him piecemeal and devour him, or by gentle beings disposed to cherish him with fond hospitality. Both writers have expressed themselves well, but meseems each has secured, as often happens, a fragment of the truth, and holds it to be the whole truth. Granted that such spiritual creatures as jinns walk the earth, we are pleased to find them so very human, as wise and as foolish in word and deed as ourselves. Similarly, we admire, in a landscape natural, forms like those of Staffa or the Palisades, which favor the works of architecture. Again, supposing such preternaturalisms to be around and amongst us, the wilder and more capricious they prove, the more our attention is excited, and our forecasts are baffled to be set right in the end. But this is not all. The grand source of pleasure in fairy tales is the natural desire to learn more of the wonderland, which is known to many as a word and nothing more, like Central Africa before the last half-century. Thus the interest is that of the personal narrative, of a grand exploration to one who delights in travels. The pleasure must be greatest where faith is strongest. For instance, amongst imaginative races like the Celts, and especially Orientals, who imbibe supernaturalism with their mother's milk. I am persuaded, writes Mr. Bale St. John, that the great scheme of preternatural energy, so fully developed in the Thousand and One Nights, is believed in by the majority of the inhabitants of all the religious professions, both in Syria and Egypt. He might have added, by every reasoning being from prince to peasant, from Mullah to Badawi, between Morocco and Outer India. 
The fairy tale in the nights is holy and purely Persian. The gifted Iranian race, physically the noblest and most beautiful of all known to me, has exercised upon the world history an amount of influence which has not yet been fully recognized. It repeated for Babylonian art and literature what Greece had done for Egyptian, whose dominant idea was that of working for eternity. Hellas and Iran instinctively choose at their characteristic the idea of beauty, rejecting all that was exaggerated and grotesque, and they made the sphere of art and fancy as real as the world of nature and fact. The innovation was hailed by the Hebrews. The so-called books of Moses, deliberately and ostentatiously ignored, the future state of rewards and punishments. The other world which ruled the life of the Egyptian in this world, the lawgiver, whoever he may have been, Osarsip or Moshe, apparently held the tenet unworthy of a race whose career he was directing to conquest and isolation in dominion. But the Jews, removed to Mesopotamia, the second cradle of the creeds, presently caught the infection of their Asiatic media, superadded Babylonian legend to Egyptian myth, stultified the law by supplementing it with the absurdities of foreign fable, and ended, as the Talmud proves, with becoming the most wildly superstitious and otherworldly of mankind. The same change befell al-Islam. The whole of its supernaturalism is borrowed bodily from Persia, which had imparadised earth by making it the abode of angels. Mohammed, a great and commanding genius, blighted and narrowed by surroundings and circumstances, to something little higher than a covenanter or a puritan, declared to his followers, I am sent to establish the manners and customs. And his deficiency of imagination made him dislike everything but women, perfumes and prayers, with an especial aversion to music and poetry, plastic art and fiction. Yet his system, unlike that of Moses, demanded somaturgy and metaphysical entities, and these he perforce borrowed from the Jews, who had borrowed them from the Babylonians. His soul and spirit, his angels and devils, his cosmogony, his heavens and hells, even the bridge over the great depths, are all either Talmudic or Iranian. But there he stopped and would have stopped others. His enemies among the Koraish were in the habit of reciting certain Persian fabliaux and of extolling them as superior to the silly and equally fictitious stories of the glorious Koran. The leader of these scoffers was one Nazar ibn Haris, who, taken prisoner after the Battle of Bedr, was incontinently decapitated by apostolic command for what appears to be a natural and sensible preference. It was the same furious fanaticism and one idea intolerance which made Caliph Omar destroy all he could find of the Alexandrian library and prescribe burning for the holy books of the Persian Guebers. And the taint still lingers in all Islam. It will be said of a pious man, he always studies the Koran, the traditions and other books of law and religion, and he never reads poems, nor listens to music or to stories. Mohammed left a dispensation, or rather a reformation so arid, jejun and material, that it promised little more than the law of Moses, 
before this was vivified and racially baptized by Mesopotamian and Persic influences. But human nature was stronger than the prophet, and thus outraged, took speedy and absolute revenge. Before the first century had elapsed, Orthodox al-Islam was startled by the rise of Tasawuf or Sufism, a revival of classic Platonism and Christian Gnosticism, with a mingling of modern Hillazoism, which quickened by the glowing imagination of the East, speedily formed itself into a creed, the most poetical and impractical, the most spiritual and the most transcendental ever invented, satisfying all man's hunger for belief, which, if placed upon the solid basis of fact and proof, would forthright cease to be belief. End of section 19